If I were inclined like Grant McCaskill to uh, explain things by reference to films and, and apply that in this context, I think I would introduce our next speaker in relation to the Big Lebowski. <laughs> I think I can safely say that because I've been referred to online as a Bohemian Bardian. Um, I have known Ken Oakes since he first uh, encountered me in a uh, classroom on Point Loma Nazarene University's campus, my alma mater. Uh, he, like me, is an ex-Nazarene Bartian, and uh, there aren't many, very many of us. Um, so I, I rejoiced years later when he was able to join a seminar here as a PhD student of John Webster's um, on the prima pars of the uh, Summa Theologiae of Thomas Aquinas with a really stellar uh, group of, of students, and he was a major contributor to that. Uh, Ken is an assistant professor of systematic theology at Notre Dame, where he was my colleague last year uh, when I had a free semester there. And uh, he is the author of two books on Bart, uh, a companion to the Romans commentary, and a book on Bart on the relationship of theology and philosophy. Uh, it does my heart good as a person of uncertain age to see such bright people coming into the Guild of Bart Scholars Scholarship, and uh, I welcome you to our podium. Ken. Uh, hi, I'm Ken. Um, thanks for being here today. Uh, the goal of this paper is rather simple. I'm going to speak about Karl Barth's understanding of eschatology and gospel in the time of expectation, meaning in the time before the coming of Jesus Christ. In this paper, I will begin by uh, detailing what Bart means by the time of expectation in Church Dogmatics 1-2. I will then move on to consider two sections of the Church Dogmatics in which Bart speaks about eschatology and gospel in the Old Testament. The first will be the section ending time in Church Dogmatics 3-2, where Bart talks about different Old Testament accounts of death of death's meaning and what may lie beyond death. The second will be Bart's account of Israel's prophetic witness, which he develops in his doctrine of Christ's prophetic office in Church Dogmatics 4.3. What we will see in each of these sections is that Bart, Bart posits a striking amount of formal and material continuity regarding eschatology and gospel between the time of expectation and the time of recollection or the time in which the apostles of Jesus Christ and those which follow him witness to Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. So, the time of expectation, Church Dogmatics 1-2. So what does Bart mean by this phrase? Paragraph 14 of Church Dogmatics 1-2 is entitled, The Time of Revelation, and it consists of three sections. God's time and our time, the time of expectation, and the time of recollection. And our focus here will be upon the second section, the time of expectation. What Bart calls fulfilled time, the time of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his post-resurrection appearances, is flanked by two types of time, the time of expectation and the time of recollection. In both of these times, there exist witnesses and testimonies to fulfilled time. The witness of these two times is confirmed by the Christian canon, as it includes the Old Testament, the testimony of the prophets, and the New Testament, the testimony of the apostles. 
And while the time of expectation and recollection differ, they are, quote, one in their content, their object, in the thing attested. And also one in that for them, this thing attested is neither merely future nor merely past, but as future and as past, it is present. Bart goes on to discuss several theologians who grasp and explicate the differentiated unity, or what Bart even calls the essential identity of the Old and New Testament. Just as in the Goetzingen dogmatics and the Christliche dogmatik, Irenaeus and Augustine are positive examples of this continuity and unity of the Old and New Testament. <clears throat> it is, however, Calvin, in particular, whom Bart praises on this topic, providing allusions to Calvin's Institutes, Book 2, Chapter 7 through 13. Bart notes that for Calvin, God's covenant with the Israelites is substantia et re ipsa, not different from God's covenant with us, but identical with it. We must not speak of similitudo only between them, but of unitas, for both cases are concerned with the hope of eternity, with the covenant of grace between God and his own, and with the one mediator, Christ. He also states that Calvin rightly understands the promise, I will be your God and you shall be my people, as a promise of unlimited content, and that the difference between the Old and New Testament is a difference of God's administratio of the one covenant of grace, and it is not a difference of substantia. Bart next goes on to develop three specific lines of continuity and unity between the time of expectation and the time of recollection, or between the Old and New Testament. First, the Old Testament, like the New, is a witness to God's self-revelation, and most especially it is a witness to God's covenant of grace enacted with Israel. Just as with the New Testament, Revelation in the Old refers to God's free, utterly once for all, and concrete action. It refers to God's self-relating to his people out of his own untrammeled initiative in the sheer now of his decisions. And this free, utterly once for all, and concrete action is directed towards the creation of a covenant, towards a genuine yet asymmetrical partnership between God and human beings. The form of this gracious and unmerited covenant, which is demanded of its human partners, is laid out in the law delivered at Sinai. And this mosaic law, this law at Sinai, Bart calls, quote, the instrument of the divine compassion. Second, the Old Testament, like the New, is, a wit is the witness to the revelation in which God remains a hidden God. Indeed, God declares himself to be the hidden God by revealing himself. Within this revelation of the hidden God, there is enacted a judgment upon all other visible and invisible deities. Now that God is here and actually present, there is a radical de-divinization of nature, history, and culture, a remorseless denial of any other divine presence save the one in the drawing up of the covenant. As the bearer of this revelation of the revealed and hidden God, Israel only too clearly means catastrophe for the surrounding world. Third, the Old Testament, like the New, is the witness of the revelation in which God is present to humanity as the God who comes, as the coming God. 
Bart stresses both temporal terms. God is present and is present as the coming one in the Old Testament. This conjunction of presence and coming leads Bart to consider the different forms of the deep and inherent eschatological thread of the Old Testament. Before he considers these different forms, however, Bart makes this clear. The eschatological character of reconciliation and revelation does not mean any negation of its presence, either in the Old Testament or in the New. And he goes on to say that Abraham, Moses, and the prophets are recipients of revelation in the full sense of the term. Where in Israel's life and history and witness do we see this eschatological thread, this combination of presence and future? Bart thinks that we can see it first in the notion of the people of Israel itself. Certainly we can define Israel as the sum total of the descendants of the sons of Jacob. And yet what, and yet what happens to this definition after the separation and exile of the 10 northern kingdoms? Who now belongs to Israel? We might venture to answer that Israel is now Judah Benjamin, a holy remnant. But who belongs to this remnant? Those who listen to the voices of the prophets, those gathered around and faithfully worshiping in the temple. These questions are further complicated by Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. <clears throat> For they, be, they seem to speak again of a renewal of Israel as a whole, including the 10 northern tribes. Bart thinks that, this, that these complications show that the notion of the people of Israel remains a problematic reality. And yet within this problematic reality, there is a promise regarding the future. Bart thinks that the eschatological thread of the Old Testament can also be seen in its accounts of the land. For this land not only refers to the geographical boundaries of the 12 and then the two tribes, but it's also called the land flowing with milk and honey. And so the land itself also represents more broadly a miraculously renewed earth upon which this people will someday live amid the other happily and peacefully united peoples. Bart thinks that the eschatological thread of the Old Testament can also be seen in the notion and reality of the temple, which was built and then ruined and rebuilt, and perhaps not only two times, but three or four. Um, and there's this later promise that this temple, which was ruined and rebuilt by human hands, we hope that this temple will one day be, real, be, be rebuilt by God himself. Bart thinks that the eschatological thread of the Old Testament can also be seen in the idea of the lordship of God, as this idea includes the hope for a kingdom which is without end and which is spread throughout the earth and which will gather all the families of the earth around the Lord's holy mountain. Bart thinks that the eschatological thread of the Old Testament can also be seen in its account of judgment. For alongside the national and natural disasters suffered by Israel, there is also the dreadful possibility of Israel's rejection and the burning wrath of God upon all the nations, the judgment of the world. Finally, Bart thinks that the eschatological thread of the Old Testament can also be seen in its ideas regarding kingship. 
And under the title of king, the Old Testament not only includes its long line of mischievous and dubious rulers who did evil in the sight of the Lord, but eventually there emerges the picture of the human helper, comforter, and Lord sent by God, who someday at the approaching end of time will realize the promise of the covenant for this people. In sum, we can see in this section detailing the time of expectation that Barth considers the witness of the Old Testament to be continuous and even essentially identical with the witness of the New. We have seen that the difference between the covenants of the Old and New Testaments is one of divine administration, and it's not a difference of substance. And Barth also thinks that some of the primary subjects, realities, and symbols of the Old Testament reflect both the presence and the coming of the Lord. A church dogmatics 3-2. So, on to Bart's understanding of the picture of death in the Old Testament. Bart develops his understanding of death in the Old Testament in the section ending time in church dogmatics 3-2. Bart states that the greatest of all questions is posed to Israel by the fact of death. And while he thinks that Israel cannot answer or solve this riddle, he thinks that within its inability to do so, the positive answer provided by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is already present even if hidden. The first aspect of the phenomenon of death in the Old Testament that Bart explores is its character as deprivation. Life desires more life. And so death means to be deprived of the freedom for true and meaningful action and movement. Death is complete deprivation. For the dead are without the things that the Lord has promised to the living and to his people Israel. For death removes one from the land, from the holy city, and from the temple, the places where Israel trusts its God to be present. Equally, the dead are deprived of offering what Israel is to return to its Lord, praise and worship. And so in several places, the psalmist laments that the dead cannot remember nor give thanks to the Lord. Death is not only deprivation, but Bart thinks that in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament, death is also seen as a force, a force that is wholly superior to humanity, a power which holds humanity in thrall. This aspect of death as a power, Bart argues, is present in its depiction of death as a hopeless place from which there is no escape. So death is a kingdom in Psalm 89. Death is a type of city or house which is sealed up, as in Jonah 2. And death is also a place where human beings are bound with cords, as in Psalm 18 and 116. Death in the Old Testament is also, also often associated with the grave, the ocean, and the wilderness, places that are remote, alien, chaotic, and perilous, and opposed to the place of the living. Bart goes on to say that death in the Old Testament is not simply a static force or place which stays within its boundaries, but that it is also characterized as having its own dynamic, in virtue of which it invades the areas which properly belong to the world of life. Death is a kingdom on the offensive. 
death has a hand which reaches out. Or as we read in Isaiah 5, therefore death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth, into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. As death invades the land of the living, it makes itself known in various different concretions. In the process of human beings suffering from being sick, accursed, imprisoned, or lonely, the human person is already placed on death's slippery slope and under its sentence. A grim picture of the denizens of the underworld and the next door neighbor of its real and permanent inhabitants. Accounts of the afflictions of those lost in the desert, of the sick, of prisoners, of those in peril on the sea, are readily present in scripture. And the common denominator behind these afflictions and distresses is the, quote, um, onslaughts of the invading realm of the dead, unquote. The grave, the ocean, and the wilderness are thus associated with death and also with its invasive creep. For in these places, death is, quote, present here and now in full actuality for the sick, the outcast, the persecuted, defeated, and oppressed, the prisoner in his prison, the wanderer in the wilderness, the storm-tossed seafarer. For although they are not yet actually dead, they already experience the full reality of death." End quote. These encroachments by death upon the living are certainly calamitous, painful, and unfortunate. And yet we might also say that events of this type are still neutral as regards divine judgment or divine punishment. For these events unfortunately belong to what it means for humans to be finite, vulnerable, and limited in their own time. In the midst of outlining these different aspects of death in the Old Testament, Bart pauses to note that here we can see substantive continuity between the Old and New Testament. As regards the limited nature of our time and life, its vulnerability and exposure to death inroads, quote, we may simply assume that the Old Testament picture as outlined in every respect by the evangelists and apostolic writers, and may thus be presupposed in whatever else they have to say on the topic. Yet the Old Testament is also aware of an association between death and curse, punishment and judgment, and in this regard, death also gains a negative aspect. Bart thinks that this interconnection is most often seen only in specific instances in the Old Testament and that the only direct statement of this interconnection of death and judgment is the warning in the Garden of Eden and its confirmation in Genesis 3 and Genesis 6. He goes on to say, however, that it is the New Testament which makes the interconnection between death, guilt, and judgment tighter and harsher. Quote, the truth is that no law, not even the law of Moses, can judge a man as the New Testament judges him, end quote. <clears throat> Bart notes that in the Old Testament, we have a negative picture of a shadowy existence of departed souls. But it is only in the New Testament that we have a picture of the possibility of human existence in hell. 
he thinks that we would be foolish to expect that the New Testament is more humane on this point. For it is only in the New Testament that we read of anguish in the flame, of being cast out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, of the worm that dieth not, and of the smoke of the torment which rises forever. So with those kinds of pictures, we might want to actually go back to just a kind of shadowy existence, right? <clears throat> this negative aspect of death, its connection with divine judgment and punishment, includes within itself a positive statement and a positive hope. In death we encounter God, and in Revelation we know that the Lord of death is also the gracious God. Bart thinks that at this point we can again recognize the material unity of the Old Testament and the New. He says that, quote, we learn nothing materially new when we formally enter New Testament ground. We are again concerned with our God as the limit of our death, with the one who is the Lord of death, and therefore alone is to be feared in death, with our gracious God in consolation, our helper and deliverer in the midst of death, so that in hope in him, death is already behind and under us, end quote. Or as Bart stresses this unity again, quote, the Old Testament insight remains and is even strengthened that in death God alone is to be feared and he alone is our consolation, end quote. The material unity of the Old and New Testament revelation and perception, Bart finds clear and convincing. What the New Testament does add, and this is no small addition, is that God as our helper and redeemer can now only be found and known in his unity with the one human being, with the man, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Bart says that the Old Testament was already aware of the Lord's superiority over death and the underworld. Death in the time of expectation is a powerful menace, but it is not an independent God. For it is the Lord who says, I form the light and I create darkness, I kill and I make alive. Death does not exist side by side with God in the Old Testament, nor does it exist above God, but it remains under God. And there are also already hints in the prophets and in the Psalms that the Lord rules the underworld, just as he rules heaven and the land of the living. The Lord is thus the Lord of death and of life in the Old Testament, and yet he is not equally the Lord of death and of life. Bart states that he is the Lord of death, but this does not mean that he affirms it. As creator, he affirms life and only life. As creator, the Lord affirms and desires life for his creation. Likewise, as the Lord of the covenant, God affirms Israel's life and preservation and salvation, not its destruction. Have I any pleasure that the wicked should die? Does not the Old Testament itself hope that God will swallow up death in victory? Bart admits that these passages come from the later strata of Israel's history, but he nonetheless thinks that it's representative of the whole trend of the Old Testament. Quote, as he is for Israel, 
for his covenant with it, for its salvation, both corporate and individual. He is not for death, but against it. He may have to kill and make alive, but it is obviously not to kill, but to make alive. That being said, there are still some uncertainties regarding death in the Old Testament. The Old Testament can speak of being drawn or brought out of death, out of the wilderness, and out of the sea. But to where does the Lord take those who are dying? Hopefully back to the land of the living. But supremely, the Israelite hope is to be taken to the place where God's own countenance shines again on humanity. There are also occasional notes of redemption and ransom in the Old Testament. But the idea is still not entirely clear, and Bart does not think it has yet become a historical reality. And despite these, these critical sort of comments or qualifications, Bart goes on to say this, yet the Old Testament has a good deal to teach us on the subject. Indeed, rightly understood, it can teach us everything. The figure that Bart calls Old Testament man can know that the Lord alone is his radical helper in and out of death. He knows that he is not left to face death and the underworld alone. There is nevertheless a fundamental limit to the Old Testament inasmuch as it knows nothing of a renewal of humanity in a time after our death. Bart has now broached the topic of the possibility of eternal life a concept that seems to be absent from the Old Testament. So what then does Bart think of eternal life? And what does he think of eternal life in the time of expectation and in the time of recollection? Bart lists a series of passages that have been used to prove that the Old Testament has some type of vision of eternal life. But he doubts whether any of these can definitively show that this concept exists. Even passages such as Isaiah 26, 19 and Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14 seem to concern the renewal of Israel's existence and history. And these don't seem to be notions of the dead as such. And Bart even takes Daniel 12 to be primarily referring to, um, to the Israelites and not to humanity as such. So Bart then asks, what is their radical hope and deliverance of which they are assured of the fact that God is for them and they are still there for him? The question is never answered in the Old Testament, yet it is not a vain or hopeless question. It is a question full of hope and confidence bearing its non-answer within it. Most significant for Bart is that this question of radical hope and deliverance is a question which is addressed to God the only one who can answer it. All man's deliverance, redemption, preservation, and salvation in and out of death is enclosed in God in his existence in faithfulness. That it is all enclosed in him and to be expected from him is the hope of the Old Testament in relation to death. Bart then adds, the hope of the New Testament is not materially different. So the question regarding eternal life still remains. Bart then considers one of the dominant ways in which this question is asked. What about the continuation of human life after death? 
After some brief remarks on 1 Corinthians 15, he states that there is no question of the continuation into an indefinite future of a somewhat altered life. Instead, Bart holds that the New Testament posits an eternalizing of our present life, meaning that our limited time among the living is transformed by participation in the eternal life of God. The Old Testament could not say this before Jesus Christ, but it still could refer a transitory and temporal humanity to the abiding existence and faithfulness of God. In this referral, there is a positive implication of this hope for some type of participation in the eternity of the Lord, but the Old Testament never makes this explicit. Nevertheless, when the New Testament speaks of the resurrection of Jesus and our hope of being raised with him, it also confirms what the Old Testament says. For it places transitory humanity as such, um, our life in our time, our beginning and our end, in the light of the promise vouchsafed in the death, the resurrection, and the second coming of the man Jesus. It has not abandoned the sober realism of the Old Testament. On the contrary, it has shown how sound it is and given it its real force. So even with this eternalizing of the limited time of the creature, Bart thinks that the New Testament still takes seriously the majesty of God and the finitude of the human creature as emphasized in the Old Testament. Bart says, the New Testament agrees with the Old Testament that this lowly and finite creature, humanity, in its time is affirmed by the Most High God and that the power of this affirmation is the secret of its beginning and end, its true help and deliverance in and from death. To wish for more than the New Testament, to wish for some type of good time after death, would entail moving towards pagan conceptions of the afterlife and away from the sober realism that the New Testament shares with the old. As noted above, however, it seems that in the Old Testament, death is not always viewed as an evil in and of itself. There are instances in which death is merely accepted and that when life has run its course, it is fitting and proper for a person to die. Bart offers the reminder that in the Old and New Testament, death is often viewed in its menacing character as synonymous with judgment, guilt, and punishment. But he also notes that there are three exceptional cases in the Old Testament which can show us that death also has a neutral, natural, or even positive aspect. There is first, the death and burial of Moses in Deuteronomy 34. Bart understands the Lord's personal burying of Moses to be an indication that the bounded and limited quality of Moses' life was wholly natural, and that this burial of Moses displays before all of Israel the peace between the Lord and Moses, a peace which was assured and guaranteed by the Lord himself. There is, second, the death of Enoch in Genesis 5. Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him. Here, Bart states 
the penal character of death seems to have wholly disappeared and that we are told, in fact, although indirectly, that he died as Moses died. In both cases, we learn that this death took place in complete concealment. But it is not denied that his life was over and that he had had only an allotted span of time like others. There is third, there is third, the case of the disappearance of Elijah in 2 Kings 2, which Bart describes as the most explicit of all the hints in this direction in the Old Testament, as well as the most difficult one and the most illuminating one. He says that what is usually called death is in this case completely veiled, concealed, and indeed annulled by the revelation of the true nature of the life here concluded, of Israel's invincible power of the gracious God of Israel. Instead of a journey to the underworld, here with Elijah, we have a procession heavenwards. Bart reminds us that these three, that these three cases are indeed exceptional. And he goes on to say that all of the pleasant or natural deaths in the, New, in the Old Testament must be viewed as due to a gracious intervention from the Lord. Far more common in the Old Testament is a premature, calamitous, or evil death. But these three cases show us that there is a real end, a real finish to one's life, which is not yet judgment, but communion with God and that this end may be known by God's gracious intervention. The fact that the gracious God makes himself the end of man, and that this is not therefore gloom but glory, plainly and definitively confirms that this end as such is not a question of disorder, but of order, and that in it we do not have to deal with the sphere of chaos, but with the good creation of God. Bart thinks that this distinction between a first natural and neutral death and a second unnatural and corruptive death is also present in the New Testament. There is a death which is simply the end of one's life and which does not signify an armed and powerful foe, but the approaching end of human life as contrasted with the possibility of its further continuance. Bart adduces a variety of New Testament passages which reveal this natural, neutral death. But it is John 11:25 which most impresses him. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. In the New, Test in the New Testament too then, the death in death can be abolished. And whenever this happens, it is, just as in the case with the Old Testament, a result of God's extraordinary intervention. The second death can be abolished. And so to be freed for eternal life means being freed for just a natural death. The New Testament, like, like the Old, speaks of this natural death. And thus, quote, the New Testament fully matches the sober realism of the old in this matter, end quote. The character of eschatology and gospel in the time of expectation in the Old Testament is perhaps most fully developed 
in Barth's account of Christ's prophetic office in Church Dogmatics 431. Barth begins by noting four differences between Jesus Christ and the individual prophets of the Old Testament. First, Christ's prophetic office is not something later added on to his existence or a mission given at a particular point in his life. Instead, Christ's prophetic office informs the whole of his existence and life. Second, Christ is not only a prophet from Israel who speaks to Israel, but he is a prophet who is also handed over to the nations and who speaks and commissions his disciples to spread his message until the ends of the earth. In this way, Christ is even greater than Jonah, as noted in Matthew 12. Third, the Old Testament prophets speak on the basis of the covenant and they indicate the covenant, but they also always speak to and are concerned about the risk of the covenant being broken from the side of God's people. Jesus Christ, however, speaks in the light of the fulfilled covenant for the, from the covenant fulfilled on the sides of both God and humanity. Fourth, none of the Old Testament prophets is a mediator between God and humanity. The prophets run back and forth between the Lord and his people, and they themselves suffer from the contradiction and opposition between the Lord and his wayward people. Jesus Christ, however, is both Lord and servant. And as such, he is the one who can and does heal the contradiction and opposition between God and Israel. No single prophet stands as a true type or adequate prefiguration of the prophecy of Jesus Christ. So no single prophet is a true or adequate type or prefiguration of the prophecy of Jesus Christ. These four differences between Jesus Christ as prophet and the prophets of Israel makes Bart's next statement or line of argument all the more striking. Bart states that Jesus Christ can be, quote, unconditionally compared with the glory of Israel in its totality and interconnection as planned, initiated, controlled, and determined by the Lord. So we can make an unconditional comparison between the prophecy of Jesus Christ and the prophecy of Israel as a whole. So Bart notes four points in this unconditional comparison that we can make. First, the prophecy of Israel takes place together with its history. The history of Israel as witnessed by the prophets. And in this way, Israel's history is a speaking, summoning prophetic history. Second, no single Old Testament prophet was a universal prophet. Nevertheless, the Old Testament emphasizes time and again that the covenant between the Lord and Israel is not an end in itself and does not exhaust itself in this particular relationship, but it has significant relevance and true and dynamic meaning for the relationship between God and all the nations, and indeed all the peoples of all nations. The covenant addressed to Israel is one of unmerited grace, of gratitude and obligation, and it stands under the promise of a glorious future. This glorious future means that the Old Testament env envisions a radiant future beaming and shining in the world and therefore lightening the world. 
Israel is exemplary, and it serves a universal function, and it acknowledges that God's plan, purpose, and intention for this people and its covenant includes all the families of the earth, even if they do not realize it. In fact, Barth holds that the expansive eschatological teleology of the Old Testament is clearer and richer than that of the New. Quote, in comparing the Old and New Testament witness, can we really avoid the impression that the former is richer, more explicit, more patent, and more emphatic than the latter? In relation to the problem of the universalism of the covenant, the glory of God, and the salvation of this and the salvation of humanity. Or again, the Old Testament says what is not self-evident in relation to the prophecy of the particular history of Israel. And for this reason, in order that it should not be overlooked, it says it so much more the forcefully and colorfully. In this respect, we cannot be over-attentive to it if we are to truly understand the far less vivid universalism of the New Testament. So one can agree or disagree with Barth's judgments on these remarks. But what I really want to flag is this, that this is what Barth says. The Old Testament witness to the universality of the covenant, to the glory of God, to the salvation of humanity, is richer, more explicit, more patent, and more emphatic than the witness of the New Testament with its far less vivid universalism. Third, the individual prophets of Israel speak for God against the people and not on the basis of the accomplished reconciliation and the present kingdom of God. In its totality and interconnection, however, the prophecy of the history of Israel does not suffer from this restriction as it speaks of the covenant of grace and the presence of the glory of God. The prophets speak to the contradictions and crises enacted by sin and guilt, but this opposition is overarched and stabilized and ordered by the covenant of grace. In other words, in its totality and interconnection, the prophetic character of Israel is gospel is good news. In the time of expectation, there is past and future grace, but there is also the present grace, unreservedly lavished by God and unreservedly experienced and known as such by the people and the men of his, this people. In common with the prophecy of Jesus Christ, God is not merely coming to be, but is, and that as the Lord on earth as well as in heaven, he is at work as such. The response to this present grace unreservedly lavished by God to his people Israel is gratitude and praise, as is readily recognized in the Old Testament. Bart states that we misunderstand the Old Testament if we do not realize that this element of praise or doxology is the basic note. Within this overarching covenant of grace, there are real fulfillments, earthly, temporal, material fulfillments, but real fulfillments nonetheless. Quote, in these fulfillments, there is declared and revealed and attested what Calvin, according to his understanding, called the substantia foderis, identical in both the Old Testament and the New, the power, mercy, and faithfulness, 
the infinite generosity of God addressed to man and experienced by him. And as these are already at work in the totality and interconnection of the history of Israel, and these are at work not sparsely or partially, but in all their fullness. The New Testament witnesses could hardly praise God more highly than was already done in the Old. Bart states that it is not an accident then that in its praise of Jesus Christ and the reconciliation accomplished in him, the New Testament so often uses the doxology or doxologies drawn from the Old Testament. Fourth, the history of Israel has a mediatorial character. The first part of this fourth point is that in the Old Testament, God and humanity work together. God acts and works through specific events, and yet these events are also human actions and passions, works and experiences, and vice versa. Invoking the symbol of Chalcedon, Bart states that between the work of God and the work of individual Israelites, there is, quote, coexistence and co-inherence, though without any confusion or mixture of the two elements or transformation of one into the other, end quote. In other words, Bart says that in the Old Testament, we can see a, quote, living divine human unity. The prophecy of Israel is one which combines rather than divides, one which unites rather than separates. And what it combines and unites in its center is that what is above and what is below, the transcendent God and lowly man, are found to be together. The second aspect of Israel's mediatorial role is that its history is exemplary and representative. He causes to take place on a small scale, but in a way which recapitulates or prefigures the whole, his history with this one people, Israel. The prophecy of the history of Israel in its totality and interconnection is, quote, comparable to that of Jesus Christ in an unqualified sense, which is not true of the individual prophets. In all its autonomy and singularity, there is the prophecy of Jesus Christ in the form of an exact prefiguration. It is a matter of what Bart has called the essential unity of the Old and New Testament, both taken as a whole and then as a greater whole. And thus, it is not a matter of comparing minute foretellings or predictions, for there is no mantic capacity for such foretelling in the Old Testament nor is there a corresponding skill in discovering it and expanding it in the new. Bart then goes on to detail how the prophetic history of Israel forms part of the self-witness of the Messiah and the several, de the several pages which detail in which ways this history is part of the Messiah's history is fairly dialectical, but I think that several points can be discerned. First, Bart states that Jesus Christ and no other and no less than he exists and acts and speaks earlier in the national history of Israel. Second, Bart calls the people of Israel Jesus Christ's body, the earthly historical form of his existence, in a matter which, retailed, which recalls traditional accounts of the totus Christus to be both Israel and the church, the prophets and the apostles. Third, 
Bart states that Jesus Christ was present in Israel immediately and indirectly, not immediately and directly. And thus Jesus Christ is present to Israel as its origin and goal, present in it as the one promised and expected, or even as its secret Lord and governor. Bart's back and forth regarding old, the Old and the New Testament continues inasmuch as he notes that these negative, critical, and limiting remarks regarding the prophetic character of the Old Testament cannot be the final word. Instead, the final word regarding the prophetic history of the whole of Israel is that it is, quote, not a new or different covenant which is established and proclaimed in the history of Jesus Christ. It is the one covenant in a new reality which is only now fulfilled in this form, or as Calvin would say, in this oikonomia or administratio. And we should remember that this allusion to Calvin was already present in Barth's section on the time of expectation in Church Dogmatics 1-2. There is much left to ponder and to question regarding Barth's understanding of eschatology and gospel in the time of expectation. Who, for instance, is this figure of the Old Testament man who seems to be already so wise and to know so much? To what extent is Bart's exegesis of the Old Testament driven by his own judgments regarding Jesus Christ and the covenant of grace? How does his understanding of the continuity and unity of the Old and New Testament actually differ from that of Calvin? And to what extent is Bart consciously reacting against his modern Protestant forebears in his understanding of the significance and continuing value of the Old Testament in understanding the new? All of these are important questions. My self-appointed task for today, however, was merely to bring forward some of these striking and astonishing lines that Bart um, makes regarding the eschatology of the Old Testament and the ways in which the gospel was present, both actually and proleptically, and proleptically in the time of expectation. Thank you. Thank you.